Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 293rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Anna Njai Conte. Anna is the founder of Dare to Dream Financial Planning, an independent RA based in New York that has grown to more than 400,000 of annual revenue in barely three years by building a focused base of 32 ongoing clients coupled with more than a dozen project-based planning clients who go through a unique one-day financial planning intensive. What's really unique about Anna, though, is how she accelerated her growth to 400000 of revenue by not just trying to build her own podcast audience, but leveraging her reach by appearing on other existing podcasts that already had a sizable audience, coupled with developing her own virtual conference that worked with financial influencers to, again, leverage her reach through their audiences, all to get in front of as many of her ideal clientele as she could as quickly as she could in her early years. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Anna built a network of 19 financial influencers to launch a free five-day virtual conference in order to get her name out in front of more than 1,000 engaged prospects. The way that Anna determined the ideal podcast to target to get the word out about her advisory business by intentionally choosing over 70 podcasts that discuss economic or business issues but have not directly featured financial experts before. And how Anna has managed to buck the industry naysayers that marginalized communities can't be served profitably and has instead been able to succeed by continuously evolving her niche to increasingly stand out as a financial advisor of color successfully working with people of color. We also talk about why Anna decided to leave her former position at a broker-dealer and launch her own independent RIA so that she could have the freedom to work with clients who, like her, are entrepreneurs and women of color in their 30s and 40s. How Anna came to the realization that despite the traditional industry approach of seeking out a large firm with a stable salary and benefits as the keto work-life balance as a parent, that the better path to motherhood for her and being able to be more present with her family was to leave the large firm job and become an entrepreneur instead. And why, in addition to her ongoing retainer clients, Anna has chosen to offer a one-month and now even a one-day financial planning engagement to expand the reach of the types of clients that she can serve. And be starting to listen to the end, where Anna shares how she continues to teach herself to be comfortable with choosing a path of entrepreneurship that is pervaded with doubt and uncertainty after growing up in a household that really valued stability and consistency. How during the early stages of launching her firm, Anna realized that she needed to put aside her pride of being a one-woman band and hire the help she needed to not only grow the firm, but to save her from serious burnout. And why Anna believes authenticity, taking risks, and being outspoken, regardless of what others think, are the keys to creating a successful career path as a financial advisor and business owner. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Anna and Jai Conte. Welcome, Anna and Jai Conte, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm so excited to be here. 
I'm really excited to have you joining us for the podcast today, and 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 a chance to get to talk about uh, like the 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 growth path when when we start advisory firms, particularly when we, when we start out on our own. I you know I, I look at this through the kind of the, the lens of industry history that you know if you go back ten and certainly twenty years ago, I mean getting started in the industry was essentially like a desk, a phone, and a yellow book because do not call us was not was not fully up and running yet. Like we just cold called, and if you didn't want to do that maybe you could cold knock and like go 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 prospect and networking meetings or literally going door to door to uh, businesses on Main Street as a lot of advisors did in their early years. As like social media and internet and the digital realm have grown, I feel like we've had this shift where there's a lot more advisors now who get started in much more of a digital realm of blogging and social media and podcasting and the like. And I like I'm super upbeat on those as long-term growth strategies. I've done some of it myself, but they're long-term growth strategies. Like You have to plant those seeds for a while before before they they flower and bloom. And I know you've taken a, a little bit of an interesting mix to that, that you didn't exactly go the cold, cold calling and cold knocking route. You spent a lot more time in realms like podcasting, but not going the podcasting route of, I'm going to start my podcast and, and slowly and steadily build an audience and maybe in a few years we'll, we'll get some clients from it. But going out as a guest on podcasts and just going to where audiences already are and talking about some cool stuff that you're doing, which we'll, we'll get into more, more into soon, and really got growth going quite quickly for yourself in this realm of, I'm just going to go where the people are and talk about the cool things that I'm doing. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really excited to talk about that journey and just whether that was your vision from the start or you stumbled into it to say, I just got to find some way to get growth going now that I've launched this firm. So uh, I, I think to get started, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your advisory firm today, just so we understand the context and then talking about like how how growth happens to get you to where you are. Yeah, I love that. So I run Dare to Dream Financial Planning, which is a registered independent advisory firm used to be based in the DC metro area now relocated as of about a month to the New York area. And we primarily work with first-generation Americans who are either tech executives or entrepreneurs. And, you know, this has been exactly what I wanted to do and the people that I've wanted to work with for ages. And it's been a really interesting ride over the last three years that I've been building this practice to get to the point where I am just absolutely thrilled that I get to talk to these people every day and help them make really cool things happen for themselves and their communities and also to be really intellectually stimulated and participate in the lives of folks who are changing things from the ground up. So, so where does this focus come from? That just that was a, a very specific framing of first generation Americans who are tech executives or entrepreneurs. So, like, where, where does that come from? <laughs> yeah. So, Why? I think part of it comes from me. Um, so, I'm a first generation American. Uh, you know, my my dad's an immigrant from the Gambia. My mom's from Puerto Rico, and I recognize that we as people of color, as first generation, we have a really steep learning curve when it comes to finances and investing and building wealth because it's just a totally new system. And whether, you know, we come from a family that was economically well off or not in our country of origin doesn't really translate very well once you're in America. Hmm. On top of that, you know, there's a level of complexity that comes with, you know, being first generation, being a person of color, maybe what the first in your family to go to college, 
whatever that may be. And also having these really complex financial decisions that you have to make around, you know, equity compensation, when to exercise your NSOs versus your ISOs, when to, you know, how much to pay yourself as an entrepreneur, when you can afford to hire some some support staff. It's a really difficult and complex and nuanced situation. And it's something that I've really loved. I, I love being intellectually stimulated and challenged and problem solving. And so, you know, I found really through trial, which clients I really enjoyed working with the most and have doubled down on that. And it's worked out in my favor. Very cool. Very cool. So with that as you know, a, a core focus of who you were going after, you know, I, I, I know you launched a couple of years ago in, in, in 2019 after having been in the industry for a while already. Talk to us about like what led you to say, I've been working in an existing firm, but I want to launch my own to, to serve this clientele and how you thought about, okay, if I, if I go launch this, like I got to go get my own clients. So what, what led you to the launch and how are you thinking about launching? So I would say I spent a lot of time trying to navigate sort of the broker dealer, wirehouse, traditional wealth management model. And it just didn't feel like I was getting much satisfaction. It didn't feel like it was serving my mental health and candidly my family at the time. And so, you know, after a lot of conversations with my husband and wanting to find a way to do work that mattered to me and that I was good at and I enjoyed and also be able to be there for my family in a really impactful and important way, we made a decision that one of us would have to make a shift. And my business and my career seemed like it was the best <laughs> candidate for that and also given my personality. And so really, I went on a like I went on a deep dive down a rabbit hole, listened to a whole lot of your podcasts, trying to figure out how can I do this and, you know, not necessarily work for someone else because I briefly um, explored, you know, shifting jobs. And I quickly realized that it was going to be a lot of the same and not necessarily lead me to where I was trying to go. What was it that wasn't working in the broker dealer world? What really wasn't working was I was being told no a lot to becoming a lead advisor and having my own book. I, at the time, was you know working to support a really substantial team and serving as the main point of contact, main advisor, running the plans, you know, supervising portfolio management and operations and admin stuff. And I wanted more and I wanted to work with clients who I felt really called to work with. And that just didn't seem like it was going to work. There was also a lot of messaging to me as a young mother that this was going to be a struggle and an uphill battle and you're probably not going to be successful at it. And for me, that was also motivating. It got my wheels turning on how can I be a financial advisor, work with people that I want to and do so in a way that doesn't compromise my other personal goals to be a great mom and wife and daughter and you know be actively involved with my family. And so I went down a rabbit hole of trying to figure out how can I do this and in doing so, I stumbled across your podcast and spent a lot of time listening to different episodes and trying to figure out how do these people do this? And are there right. other ways I can do this that are not just strictly AUM focused and focusing on pre-retirees and people with already really large portfolios and helping them you know, manage those portfolios? I wanted to find a way. And that was what led me to you know, hearing a couple really impactful episodes of your podcast to me and XYPN Radio as well 
to figure out, okay, this is a viable business model and this is something that I can do. I just have to be really strategic about how I structure things and intentional about how I'm going to balance, you know, my personal obligations, my personal aspirations and my professional aspirations as well. So I want to dig more in a moment into what, what the model was that you wanted. I'm also just trying to process the the friction points that you had for where you were. Because I, 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 I thought I heard at least sort of three different threads that were challenges. It was, I'm in a support role and want to be a lead. But they're they're like they're telling me no, or they're not they're not letting me move up, or I'm not you know I'm not getting my chance to be called up to the majors. Uh, I I wanted to work with who I want and couldn't because in you're in a support role, you're working with whoever the firm brings in, so you didn't you didn't have control over clients. And then wanting I guess room or capacity to be a successful advisor and be a mother, and feeling like you couldn't do those at the same time, or at least that they were saying you weren't going to be able to do them at the same time. So like yeah. were the are those are all kind of the core core challenges that were coming up for you that that overlap so. of the three I would say so and I'd say the the last one which we didn't touch on is it got really old being the only you know woman of color in an office being the mm-hmm. only person that looked like me that had sort of my lived experiences in my little bubble and that wore on me and I realize now that I've been out of that environment so much just how much it was wearing on me it's really apparent to me at this point now that I'm a bit far removed so how was it impacting you at the time or I guess at least at least that you can see now in retrospect yeah. I think I felt so much pressure to be better. I felt so much pressure to hit the marks, get the licenses really fast in a way that I didn't have that pressure. Like the firm wasn't putting that pressure on me. I was putting that pressure on myself in some ways to prove that I belonged to be there and that I had a place there and I was smart enough and capable enough to be there because I didn't see a lot of role models or people that were above me that looked like me or had a similar background to me. I also think that, you know, there was a, I think I was discounted and underestimated a lot by a lot of folks. And that was on their assumptions, not necessarily on my performance or my reality. Uh, beyond that, there was just, you know, there's there are little kind of microaggressions that you experience as a person of color in those environments you know, people ask me about my hair. Can I touch your hair? No, thank you. Please don't touch my hair. <laughs> this is not the petting zoo. Um, you know, people asking me about weird sort of perceived cultural things that had no bearings on reality. And it just day after day, there was a little bit of a knot in my chest as to, you know, what am I going to face today? Am I going to be questioned? Am I going to be cut down in a way that I know others wouldn't be? And once again, I think with hindsight, I see just how stressful and anxiety inducing that was for me. I remember many occasions crying to and from work and, you know, not to not to paint myself out as a weeper because I'm not by any means. I'm I'm a little bit of a (laughs) I'm a little bit uh, hard as a rock sometimes, but. I found myself really feeling very vulnerable and misunderstood and misperceived on many occasions in a way that not everybody is. Because they were underestimating you because they weren't giving you a chance. All of that. So 
or just cutting me down to size. There were a lot of things that happened that I know for a fact, you know, they were doing that to me because I was young, probably a woman of color, probably someone that they didn't perceive should be there or felt like, you know, was trying to move above her station (laughs) that I don't know that other people have experienced. And candidly, I think that it was just a perfect storm of trudging uphill of all all of those. And so it ultimately culminated into, I'm not enjoying the time and I don't feel like I'm getting to where I want to be because I've been doing this for years and I still don't seem to have a clear pathway to get to the lead position. Totally. And I will say this, that, you know, management was verbally very uh, supportive of me. You know, they helped me get my CFP and helped me, you know, take on additional responsibilities and put me in a position to take on additional responsibilities. And I was doing so much of the work that I love doing now. It just was that when I wanted to make the shift and say, I want to work with younger people, I want to work with people that don't necessarily have a lot of assets right now, that path was not an option because, you know, the industry overall, in terms of the big players is moving towards, you know, ultra high net worth, you know, having really high minimums, I was on a team where, you know, we did not talk to folks who had less than 5 million liquid. So, you know, that that tells you that the people I wanted to work with were so far away from what was a possibility that I just didn't see how we could bridge that. Um, You know, beyond that, there was also not an opportunity to say, I'm going to bring on my own clients. I'm going to manage those because on some level, you know, when you have a $20 million prospect knocking on your door, you're not going to spend a lot of time working with someone who, you know, is just putting in the minimum to their 401k and you're trying to help them come up with a cohesive financial plan. And so you're like deep dive down the rabbit hole looking for other other paths and options. It sounds like this dynamic of I, I want to work with a different kind of clientele, not necessarily the ones who already have large investable asset portfolios liquid and available to move to me to manage that like that that was a big piece of this in the context of who you wanted to be working with was I I want I want to get to a different target market that just may not have assets totally that was absolutely it you know going back to my background I knew that there were so many people in my family in my immediate friends circle from college from high school after even after I started my professional career that had all of the right components to really transform their financial life for themselves and their families and change their family's financial trajectory, what they were missing was the advice and the knowledge that I I and people like me had. And I knew that I could be really impactful in my community and remove so much of the financial stressors that I saw my family go through growing up, that I saw my peers go through growing up. And I could do that by bringing that knowledge to them. But if I was not able to serve those folks, then I would not be able to have that impact in the same meaningful way and also, you know, make a living. And so I guess what was the like conclusion at the end of this journey of what what you wanted to build? Like what did you what did you ultimately come to of here's here's where I'm gonna go then and what I'm gonna do and how I'm gonna serve them and what I'm gonna charge. Yeah. So when I when I left my prior employer, it was early 2019. I left and had a baby, took some time off, and then opened the doors to Dare to Dream. And while I was in that process of, you know, being on maternity leave and 
kind of taking a step back, I spent a lot of time thinking about who I could help the most and how I could do it. And what I landed on was being fee-only, planning first firm. I had no intentions of doing AUM whatsoever at that point, <laughs> but you know, being a planning first firm that was going to serve people in their 30s and 40s, in particular women, uh, because I have a soft spot for women who are trying to you know make good financial decisions because I think they've been ignored so much by our industry and just our society as a whole. And so that was my goal. And over time, I I decided that I was going to offer two um, two models. One was going to be sort of your traditional retainer, twelve months of working with me, and the other was going to be more of a short term planning session, and that would last about a month of working with me and sort of coming up with a cohesive plan. So I I am struck as you were describing that if I'm following that flow. So like left prior employer in early 2019, had baby. Yeah. <laughs> launched launched baby. <laughs> had baby. <laughs> launched second baby known as known as firm. Um so just I'm uh, I, I'm oh well, I'm I'm struck by that in a lot of ways, but um, I I think part part of what jumps out to me in particular is just I I feel like there's a perception I guess in a lot of industries, but I I certainly hear it come up in in ours that uh you know it just lots of challenges for women that that want to start family um and that many choose larger firms that have more stable like stable salary paid time off maternity leave types of benefits and structures to support their family life. And so like just this whole framing of, hey, I've got a great idea to have more flexibility for having kids. Let's be an entrepreneur. Not (laughs) really the usual path for creating an environment for expanding families. So I guess just curious to hear more how that came together for you. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I will say we don't know each other very well, Michael. And for anybody who's listening, you may or may not know me once you hear this, but I am someone that doesn't do things by half measures. <laughs> so that, that informs a lot of my decision making. <laughs> you okay. know, I very, I, in a similar vein, I was doing my MBA and working full time when I was pregnant with my first daughter. And I, you know, she was probably five months old when I walked across the stage at graduation. Um, wow. You know, and I was holding her because I was breastfeeding her while they were doing the, the you know, graduation ceremony. And so that's just generally speaking my trend. I don't know how to take things piecemeal, but it served me well and to my own credit. Okay. So this, so, so like, hey, let's make 2019 the year we both quit our job, have a baby, and star new firm. It's just like, yeah, it's 2019. Yeah, God, I got it exactly. I did something similar in 2013, so like, no big deal. Um, <laughs> well, I'm glad to know I, at least you like space them out a little, a little bit, just a little, just like the majorly stressful years of my life okay. have been stressed out, <laughs> spaced out a little bit. No, I think you know, for us, I had an epiphany in 20. 18. So, you know, I had at that point, a four-year-old just had another baby. So my second was about a year old. And I had an epiphany that I was really profoundly miserable and knew that I had to do something because I wasn't going to be able to sustain what I was doing from an energetic 
life satisfaction standpoint. And it was affecting the way I was able to show up for myself and for my family. And that's a non-negotiable for me. And so my biggest decision point was, how can I be someone who feels professionally challenged and stimulated and like I'm adding value and contributing to society and also be a good mom? And I, you know, I alluded to this earlier, but I received a lot of messaging from coworkers, higher ups, random comments, you know, even not directed at me, but you, you read between the lines of how difficult it is to be a mother and a financial advisor at a big firm and have a successful marriage. You know, I candidly had a coworker who I think meant this very well, but he said to me, listen, you know, you don't see any moms that are not divorced as financial advisors, either they, you know, they get divorced and they have one kid or they are, (laughs) they have a stay-at-home spouse or their spouse is really wealthy and they get to hire out the help to help allow their spouse and them to pursue their careers. And, you know, this is going to be really hard for you. And so I really want you to think about the decision you're making to try and become a financial advisor in this framework, because it seems like it's going to be too difficult and not possible for you. And, you know, I think that really crystallized to me on top of some of the other dynamics that we were talking about earlier, that this was not going to be an environment in which I could thrive and in which I could do the type of work that I wanted to. And I had enough self-belief and enough evidence through, you know, me going down the rabbit hole that it was possible to create a business that aligned with who I wanted to serve and how I wanted to serve them. And also, you know, sleep and eat and have a personal life on top of that. And so what I thought about was, okay, you know, I, I find out I'm pregnant with my third child. I am looking at where I've come in my career and trying to think, okay, do Am I going to be able to continue on this path and doing what I'm doing? You know, albeit I'm appreciated at work and I'm earning a good salary, but I'm not personally satisfied and happy. And that's seeping into other areas of my life. Am I going to be able to do this with yet another child? And the decision for me was that was the prospect of that was way worse than the idea of building a business and sort of building it from the ground up and finding the clients because, you know, my prior firm clients were not really the ideal clients that I wanted to work with. So I started from scratch. And that prospect was so much more appealing because I knew that I could create my own terms. Now, you know, from a financial standpoint, I did have a good salary and, you know, my company had fully paid maternity leave, which is rare in our country. And so that mm. was a real, that there was a reality to what I was giving up. But thankfully I have the most supportive husband and I also have a very strong work ethic, which can tend to push me too far <laughs> at times, but I have a very strong work ethic. And I knew if I was strategic and smart and hustled and made it happen that we would be able to have something that would be successful. It was just a matter of me being intentional with how I spent my time and energy and, you know, how I got myself out there and built the business. Well, I'm also struck as you were talking about it that I, if I understood correctly, like it was the, it was the time off as you had the baby and then got ready for the launch that sort of gave you some of the mental space to also be thinking about like, who am I going to serve and what am I going to charge? But, but that also just makes, makes me wonder, like, does that mean you effectively left the prior firm before you had all of that sorted out and just on the assumption, like, I'm, I'm just going to figure it out while I'm out with the baby and then we're going to be off and going because 
I, I just got to make a thing, even if I'm not sure who it's going to be that I'm serving yet. Absolutely. So we, I left knowing that I was six months pregnant at the time and I was going to start a firm. I knew loosely how it was going to happen, but I didn't have the specifics. I didn't have all the spreadsheets that I have now. I didn't have all the you know profitability metrics and the marketing paraphernalia and the business plan fully written. My husband and I had talked about it extensively because you know I'm not someone that, and my husband certainly is not someone that makes really rash decisions, but we also both are really committed to pushing ourselves forward and you know taking calculated risks with our career and you know our our family life as well. So I guess like how do you approach that leap from the from the family end? I mean, was this uh we're gonna build up savings and Anna, like you get a two year runway to figure this out? Was this yeah. uh uh you know, we're just gonna cut expenses and try to live on one salary for a while and, and make a go at it? Like how did you actually pre- prepare for it if you were you'd left the prior firm before you even ultimately had all the details sorted out of what it was gonna be at the other end? Yeah, so I will say one of the benefits of being a very aggressive saver is that, <laughs> you know, my husband and I, especially me, were really intentional about, you know, putting money away from retirement, investing. And so we had built up a pretty decent amount of savings beforehand. But also we were mm-hmm. we're financially conservative in general and so bought a house that was really on the low end of what we probably could afford and, you know, had put a really sizable down payment. We were on a, you know, 15-year mortgage for a long time, refinanced to make things work a little bit and cut expenses or cut overhead. And so we did a lot of shifting to make it very feasible for us to be able to survive on his income. And, you know, he carried the health insurance and, you know, the benefits for us as a family. And that gave us the runway to say, all right, now I can take some time, build this thing and get it going. You know, I didn't start my firm with a lot of money. My husband and I pulled a couple thousand dollars out of our joint savings account. And my husband, <laughs> he, he's been my biggest supporter in this. But I will also say that he really managed his expectations. So when I started bringing in money, he's like, I didn't think you'd ha- be making anything for like at least two years. <laughs> it's like, I'm shocked you're you're actually paying yourself at this point. Like, this is impressive. You've blown my expectations out of the water. I'm like, thanks, honey. Thanks for the vote of confidence. We're just going to assume it's because he wasn't clear on the size of the growth opportunity. This was not in any way a yeah. statement about clearly your ability to execute on this business plan. <laughs> Exactly. But exactly. So I think he thought, you know, it would be much slower going. And also he he also tells me that, you know, I wouldn't if I were doing this business, I wouldn't be doing half of the things you're doing, but you're doing them and that's getting you the results that you've gotten so far. So kudos to you. But if I were in your shoes, I would I would be dialing back my effort level way, way back. So by the time you got to launch point, like what what was it at launch? Who were you serving and what what were you charging? Yeah. So I launched in August of 19. That's when I, well, that's when I got my FINRA registration finalized. And I finalized my website and everything and opened the doors in September 2019. And so at that point, I thought, okay, I'm going to focus on two groups of people. 
One is going to be women in their 30s and 40s. The other was going to be foreign service officers. My husband works at the State Department. And so I felt very confident and having dealt with, you know, being in the DC area and having lots of foreign service clients before I even left and started my own firm that I understood, you know, their benefits package and their lifestyle really well. And so I would be very well poised to serve them on a financial advice standpoint. So that was really what my goal was. I always had in my heart that I wanted to primarily work with people of color, but I didn't have the guts to say it yet at that point. What was the blocking point? Oh gosh, Michael, that's like a psychology therapy session (laughs) question. But I think it was really about internalizing a lot of the messaging that the industry gives us that you cannot serve people of color in a way that's profitable and can build a business from that. There is so much messaging around that. And I think it's also borne out by, you know, so much, you see so many financial advisors of color, you know, Black and Hispanic advisors, they are typically just insurance um, reps, right? They work at, at the big insurance companies, and that's their only entryway, entry point into the business to serve their community. And so hearing this messaging from, you know, people at my past employers, and then also just seeing the general industry trend, I felt fearful that... If I put myself out that way, I would not attract folks who could pay me and I could not build a sustainable business out of that. Okay. So targeting the bro- a broader segment of women in their 30s and 40s gave you room to go after prospects who would have enough financial wherewithal to, to pay for your services, foreign service workers, you know, state pays reasonably well. So like there would be financial wherewithal, uh, again, to be able to pay for your services. So there there were, it sounds like just there was a big focus for you on, I do want to make sure I'm going after a clientele who can pay me enough that I can make this a good business for myself. Exactly. And, you know, as as I'm sure you've talked to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of advisors at this point, you know that when they go independent, we typically undercharge at the outset. And so, yeah, a lot, Michael, a lot, I can tell you from from my experience. So in that context, so so you launched for women in their 30s and 40s and for foreign service workers. So what was the fee model out of the gate? The fee model, I think, was about $3,000 for the year, which is bananas. Um, and that's way so, well under what I'm doing now. So what was that literally is a $3,000 a year annual payment? Or was that like a $250 a month thing? Like, how, yeah, What was the actual was offering at yep. launch? It was monthly. So um, it was, you know, you sign your engagement agreement, the annual fee is $3,000. You pay me on a monthly basis. I was using PayPal at the outset. Now I'm, I've upgraded to advice pay, but that was really it. And I was doing full financial plans for folks, um, you know, doing the same quality of service that I had been before, but vastly undercharging myself. And that I quickly realized how much I was doing that after a while. But that was what I started with. So when you launched, you, you had said at one point you were looking at two models, a like, you know, a standalone planning, like planning thing over a month, and then an annual model. Did you launch with a, like a one month engagement option? Did. Or did you ultimately launch only with the 250 a month, $3,000 a year version? No, I, I launched with both and I've kept both over time. Um, you know, I find that they there are different subsets of people that want different levels of service and different access to advice. And so that has allowed me to serve a lot of really great people and do so in a way that, you know, meets them where they're at and where their need is. And 
And what was the pricing model for that when you got started? The short-term engagement, I believe, was $1,000, maybe $1,500 at absolute most, but I think it was $1,000. Okay. So, so you launched with this out of the gate. We're doing, you know, thousand or fifteen hundred dollar short term option or three thousand dollars a year payable monthly. Sounds like that's actually how you positioned it. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. two fifty a month. It was a three thousand dollar annual fee, comma pay, payable monthly. Exactly. So you so you go out to market with those two options with a target group of women in their thirties and forties and foreign service workers. So you know it's September twenty nineteen. The doors are open. So like, what what was the plan? Like, how do you start getting clients in these groups on day one? So I will tell you that. I had, I got my first two clients in one day, which is kind of odd, right? So that was in November of 2019. But in September, when I was open and live, I had actually planned a lunch and learn, like a brown bag lunch with some foreign service folks and just gave a general presentation about here's how you manage your cash flow and here's how, you know, you should be thinking about retirement. Should you do Roth versus traditional and just did a very basic educational seminar geared toward foreign service officers. And I got my first two clients from that. And then from there, I was like, okay, well, how do I do that again? (laughs) I'm just wondering, like, how did you even get the the first one? I mean, I'm presuming like you can't just stroll on down to the state department and be like, (laughs) I'm just going to do like lunch in the break room and talk for anybody who wants to come and hear me talk about finances. Like, how did you even get the first one like going and out of the gate and get anybody to actually show up for it? Yeah, I will say that's when it helped that your biggest investor is also your husband mm-hmm. <laughs> and your biggest advocate is also your husband. So he, you know, found me the right person to talk to that said, hey, yeah, I'll give you the opportunity and I'll open, I'll reserve a conference room for you. And, you know, we'll so you actually did get to, to you actually did get to do it like at, yeah. at, at state of like, yeah. I'm just, I'm going to come in and do an educational seminar. I'm presumably yes. so, someone in their equivalent of HR said, you know, this sounds helpful. Exactly. And I, I will also say, you know, the Foreign Service is a, is a unique group of people in that they, especially if they take overseas tours, they have extraordinarily high, good cash flow, positive cash flow. And a lot mm-hmm. of them have no idea what to do with it. And so they're like, you know, I'm, I'm sitting on $300,000. What do I do? Which is not really a, uh, a problem that a lot of people have, but that is a group, subgroup of people that really have that issue quite a lot. And so I think the, the bless the lovely lady who helped me set up the lunch, but I think she also recognized that that was a problem that she'd heard about quite a lot Mm -hmm. in, in her own experience and thought it would be valuable to do that. And I will also say, you know, they do a lot of programming through various training. Um, There's something called FSI. They do a lot of training on, you know, retirement planning and just general financial management and talking through benefits and all that. So it's, it's a, or an organizational institutional priority, I think. And so it's just about, you know, finding the right person and allowing them to give you a chance or them allowing you to have a chance. So, so you, so you got your chance with, you know, had a, had a good connection who could help Mm -hmm. to open, open some doors. So you do, uh, so I guess let's see. You do an educational seminar on site in a conference room. They share the word around to some foreign service folks that it's happening. So people show up, thank goodness. Uh, 
And then a month later, two of them have followed up and said, hey, Anna, we actually want to work with you on this. Yeah, exactly. So I had my introductory consults with them, and they both reached out and said yes the same day, which I thought, that's a good sign. Uh, welcome to the roller coaster of entrepreneurship. Like, <laughs> Indeed. Yes, I've been going 40 days, and like I'm still trying to get my first client, and then I get two in one day. <laughs> yeah, and then it's several months until you get some more. Right, and, <laughs> that's and, how and it works. happens for months. <laughs> yeah. So, we'll do into a full sense of security. So did they did they both sign did they both did they both sign up for the full package? Like they did. They, did. The, they got they the full did. on annual deal. All right. They did, and they're still clients to this day, which is really exciting. So it started there. So what what came next? Like, hey, that was awesome. I'm gonna get me more foreign service seminars going? <laughs> so I did do probably two more of those, but I quickly felt like it wasn't leading to the type of work I wanted to do. And at the same time, COVID happened. Um, so this was September 2019, COVID you know, shut down right. the world, early 2020. And so I quickly, even though I had always planned to be virtual, I quickly had to pivot and do more online than I was doing before. Now, I will also say, you know, I was blogging and doing social media before, you know, the world shut down. And that was always a a concurrent sort of marketing tactic for me. But I had to double down on that when, you know, we weren't seeing people in person anymore. And that wasn't an option to, you know, go to a Hmm. cocktail hour or what have you. So I get like COVID hits and all of a sudden like the in-person seminar thing ain't going to be what it was. But it sounds like you already were getting a little disenchanted with in-person seminars before that because it wasn't – I think as you said, it wasn't leading to the work, the kind of work you wanted to do. So I guess I'm wondering what what was it leading to that yeah. was not the kind of work that you wanted it to since it sounds like the first two clients at least went pretty well. Yeah, they really did and they're great folks and I enjoy them so much. But it, it just – I knew that I could have more of an impact and do more complex, thought-provoking work. And what I started to do was, you know, what's still my marketing strategy to this day, which is looking at leveraging other people's platforms to get the word out about me. And so the first thing I did was I actually put on a virtual conference and had a bunch of like financial influencers participate in that with me. And I did, you know, one-on-one sort of short interviews with them, published them as a video series, had a pop-up Facebook group. (laughs) So, so, all right, I I need like a lot more information about this. (laughs) I organized a virtual financial conference. So like, what? Yeah. Yeah. So what was this? So it was, I I hired a business coach trying to figure out how I could get my message stronger and get the word out about me. And so I hired a business coach and she helped me organize a virtual event. So basically what it was is I found a bunch of people that had decently large platforms for themselves. And they had, you know, at least an email list. I think my minimum criteria was 5,000 people. And the idea is, you know, they would sign an agreement with me. I didn't pay them. They would talk about whatever it was that was, you know, their specialty and the thing that they really cared about. None of these were financial advisors, by the way. They were all just people that, you know, were real estate investors or, you know, they taught the basics of personal finance and did workshops and those kind of things where they talked to pe- talk to people about how to set up a side hustle. They they had all of these sort of ancillary skills, but there were no direct competitors to me. And okay. so 
we did, we recorded interviews on their specific subject matter expertise. And I released those. So I did some marketing um, promotion around that. I had a week time span where those videos were released on a scheduled basis. So I would release a few every day. And the participants were required, the participants, meaning the speakers, were required to email out their email list or post to social media about the event. And from there, I got probably, I think I got about a thousand folks sign up for the virtual event that was free. Um, but people could up, I could upsell folks to be able to purchase lifetime access to the videos and things for, I think it was $50. So really reasonable <laughs> considering the value. And I will say that I still, you know, so many of the relationships that I've established from a marketing standpoint that you and I have talked about um, at the Kids Summit came from that event. But then also I've received a lot of clients, just they watched the videos and they participated and they reached out to me after and said, I I need some more ongoing one-on-one intensive help. And I know you and I trust you because I've watched several hours of you talking about these things. And so I, I want to work with you specifically. So I had still so many questions. Like I'm, I'm fascinated by this. So the virtual conference was not necessarily, I guess, at least how I, I, I still see virtual events in our industry, which is like, uh, you know, on on two days this fall, we'll be running, you know, uh, sessions for eight hours a day, like you know, an in person conference, but it'll be virtual. It sounds like that this was more dispersed, like a session or two a day over the span of a week. So this was not you know, sit in front of the screen for eight hours going through, you know, speakers in 50 minute slots with 10 minute breaks. This was Mm -hmm. one or two people a day and then another one the next day and then another one the next day until you got through all of the folks that were out there. Exactly. So I think we had five days of content of pre-recorded content. I believe we had three or four interviews released every day. Each was about 20, 25 minutes and folks could watch them at their leisure, but they had an expiry date. So they would expire after a day. So the video would go live at 12.01 a.m. and it would go away at 11.59 p.m. to force people to kind of keep up. And okay. then they and let's, could go into oh, the thus Facebook the, group. Thus the upsells. Like, mm-hmm. Or if you want to have access to it throughout, like you can yeah. pay, pay the $50. But if you really want the free-free, like you have to actually grab them the day that they go out. And exactly. just that's part of the engagement model. Exactly. So, so why – so like just I guess why that model? Like why a couple of days spread out over five days? Because just I'm, I'm – thinking about the math of this 20 to 25 minutes each, like three or four interviews is an hour to an hour and a half, like even five days worth of that content, like you could do almost that much content just in a day with a packed agenda. So like why why the five day, a couple of day stretched out version versus the, you know, the one day on a summit, yeah. come on in for the day and you just get to do all this stuff for the day? That's a good question. And I will say that I, I was following a blueprint and I trusted my coach and said, she knows what she's talking about. So I'm just going to follow her lead. I will also say as a disclaimer that this was a lot of fun to do. And I think it was very well worth it for me in terms of the relationships I was able to build for it. And just a slow burn after the fact of revenue that has come from that. However, 
it was a lot of work and I didn't have an assistant or anybody at the time. And I will tell you that there was one day where I really questioned my life decisions <laughs> in that I was up until I, I built a website to house like a landing page to house the, the videos. And I thought I saved it and I didn't save it. Oh. So when I went to log into it on the next day, it wasn't there. And I'm like, oh, dang, I got to do this again. And so I had to stay up, I think, until 3 or 4 a.m. doing it again because I discovered it, you know, in the afternoon. And that was a low point for me, Candy. <laughs> what am I doing with my life? <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, the just my other question is, is, like, is there a technology platform or tool that runs an event like this and stands it up? Or Yeah. I, so like, I just use how Carta. do you pull this off? I, do, I use Kartra, which I don't think is the most user-friendly software, hence why I Kart- thought I saved saved the, the website, but it didn't actually save. Um, but Kajabi is another one. Okay. And and so those are both just sort of like course or event hosting platforms. Exactly. So that you can you can launch these kinds of sequential sequential multi-day event structures. Exactly. So you can create landing pages and they have templates and it takes payments and all of that for you and it houses the videos too. So it's really like a one-stop shop, but um okay. You know, you call it sleeplessness or user error, uh, whatever you want to call it. It just didn't work very well for me. <laughs> well, I, I I heard somewhere that like trying to do this all this while launching a business while also being a mother to three young children can be <laughs> yeah. like slightly stressful and sleep depriving. Just a little bit. So like, just- I was used to sleep deprivation, but that took it to a new level. It's like, all right, I'm up at 2 a.m. The baby wakes up. I got I to gotta nurse her and then put her back down and get to this dang Linden page again. Here we are. Well, I feel like it's so much easier to do like the night nursing cycle when you were already up. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Totally. Because <laughs> you have were to drag processing videos. Yeah. <laughs> like it's really efficiency at that point. Totally. So, so what's the incentive for all the other people who have lists to come on and participate in in this event that you were running for for free? Like, do they get a, a piece of the upsells? Is there some other angle for them? Like, just why do they do this? They did it to get a piece of the upsell, and then also I think just build an audience. Um, you know, so much of the content creation, content marketing strategy is just you need eyeballs to show your stuff to. And so, yep. you know, I had, I think, 19 speakers and each had at least 5,000 people in their audience already. And so you think, all right, these people are going to see my video and they might start following me or they might buy stuff from me in the future. That's a that's a decent amount of people. So it's it's like a giant cross marketing thing for them, and the, and that's basically the pitch. Hey, I'm I'm going to bring together a whole bunch of people who have lists. We're all going to do this cross supportive, and you'll get seen by a lot of new people. That's it. So how many actually upsold? Like, did it did it generate any material amount of revenue from that end? I mean, like that I could directly tie to that. Absolutely not. So <laughs> probably I spent God knows how many hours doing this. I I think there was probably fifteen hundred dollars of upsell that happened at that point. Okay. And but I think the real more impactful thing was opening the door to so many of those other relationships, right? So a lot of those people that were participants in that have huge platforms now. You know, I was fortunate that I caught them sort of before they blew up and they were willing to talk to me and you know, I'm not compensating them at all, but here, can you spend some time with me and my folks? Um 
And, you know, they were willing to do that. And that relationship and building that credibility and really that one-on-one rapport has served me super well and from a marketing standpoint now. So did, did you get, I mean, of the thousand folks that signed up for the event, did, did you get any clients from it? I definitely did. So I got, okay. I got at least four that I know of. So, okay. you know, that's tangible. Um, you know, there might be others because there were so well, many people signed up at, that I didn't know couple, about. At a couple thousand dollars a year of a minimum fee, like that's not tri- that, that's not trivial. Like that's a no. ten, 10 plus thousand dollars of new revenue is not not a bad outcome at all. No, no, not at all. So I would say overall it's worth it, but there's probably a reason why I did it once and have it done again. <laughs> well, I do find there is an effect that, you know, when – when we get started in the business and the reality is we have a lot of time and not a lot of clients, there are certain marketing strategies that you do that once you get a little momentum going and have a few more clients to service, that's not necessarily the best use of time. It doesn't make it bad early on when you have a lot yeah. of time and not a lot of clients, but that that equation changes. A hundred percent. At some point. 100%. And and how did you like how did you find the speakers? I did a lot of Google searching. So I did a lot of Instagram searching, Facebook searching. You have to look for the people you want to work with where they are, where you have to go find them Mm. where they are. And, you know, it's not really a, it's a tandem approach in my estimation that you have to build something and, you know, do your own thing and, you know, be working on SEO and building your own email list and all of those kind of things. But you also have to go find folks. You can't just build it and they will come. They will come, but it's going to be a lot slower if you're just trying to build your own platform. And so, you know, I went looking for folks on Instagram and LinkedIn and Google searches and really just wanted to find people who I felt were not direct competitors to me. So I wasn't looking for other financial advisors to be on this and participate with me. I wanted to find folks who were had different and varying lanes or subject matter expertise that they could bring and that I felt, you know, spoke in a way that was understandable and relatable to the people that I wanted to work with, which is a huge issue I see in our industry is that, you know, we speak in jargon and we talk in code and acronyms and, you know, PE ratios and God knows what. And the clients don't understand that. And they often don't care about that. And it really puts them off, especially when you think about people who, you know, are first generation wealthy in their family and might not necessarily have as much familiarity with these really nuance and niche terms. And so you think, all right, I want to find people who speak in a way that folks understand and is not intimidating and not off-putting to the type of people I want to work with. So I so I get kind of the evolution, like starts out with foreign service, did some of the seminars, worked okay, but don't love who you're getting. Then COVID breaks, like we got to go more virtual anyways. So, so we try the virtual conference, gets a few more clients going out of that. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering, Two things at this point. Well, ultimately, like what came next? But I guess before we get there, like so at at this point, are are we even still attached to foreign service? Because like there's no connection to foreign service with just you know virtual financial conference with 19 yeah. influencers. Like, are we completely gone from foreign service now? Who and and who are we going after at this yeah, point? Yeah, I think we were, and you know. 
as I'm working on this, um, you know, this, this marketing push with the virtual conference, I was also doing a lot of work on leveraging other people's podcasting platforms and their own audiences in getting the word out about my service. And so what I started to see from some of the clients that I got from this conference and then also that were coming to me from these other people's platforms was that I really enjoyed working with entrepreneurs and I liked having people with really complex, juicy financial problems and opportunities. And entrepreneurship, I also found, has a certain subset of people that are willing to do things and make things happen for themselves in a way that, you know, not to say that others aren't, but that seems to be a common denominator amongst that group of people. And so I knew that that worked really well with my personality. And I guess that's a good That's a good point. Like if, you know, if you have a frustration of working with clients where you give them all the advice and then they never take action and do anything, like (laughs) try working with entrepreneurs, like failure to take action, probably not going to be your primary challenge. No. In fact, it's like, can we slow down and not take so much action, please? Thank you. (laughs) Right? Like, guys, I need you not to like change strategy every day or implement a new strategy every day. Like, let's, let's slow down a little bit. But, you know, in building this business, so much of it was making sure that I'm really satisfied with what I'm doing because I think I show up better as an advisor when I am acting in that capacity. And so I want people who value my advice, who listen and take my advice. And I want to serve people in a way that also suits my personality and sort of what I like. And one thing I hate more than anything is spinning my wheels and not making progress. And, you know, that group of people in the fact that they're often very willing to take action and get things done is, has been really good for me and, you know, my own satisfaction with my job. So how do you handle this shift? Like, I don't know if it impacted you at all, but I, I, I hear this a lot as a, as a fear and a concern point for advisors who are launching and figuring out who they're going after. You, you, you did this initial launch where, okay, like took some time off while I had the baby, figure out who I want to go after. We're going to do a big push in a foreign service. I've got a connection there. All the, all, you know, all the good things about, about setting it up. You know, you, you, you go to market with that. You're telling your friends and family and your network around that, like that's your thing. And then like six to nine months later, that's not your thing anymore. It's like, well, now, now I work with entrepreneurs. <laughs> never, yeah. never mind that foreign service thing. I'm, I'm over here now. So, yeah. like, is that a is like was that a comfortable pivot? Was that a strange pivot? Did you have people asking, like, wait, you do entrepreneurs now? I thought you were in foreign service. Like, yeah, I, I feel like for a lot of advisors, they're trying to pick. There's sort of this implicit pressure of like, once you pick a thing, that's your thing. Like, you're not supposed to change your thing after your thing, but then you change your thing in <laughs> six to nine months. So, like. <laughs> Help, help help me process this. Yeah. So from, I will tell you, I think, you know, my, my initial clients were just like, so you're still going to work with us, right? You're not firing us. Like, just so we're clear, mm-hmm. that was really their biggest concern. There wasn't a well, big Which I think concern. is powerful. So your foreign service people weren't like, well, darn it, Anna, I'm angry and I'm going to leave you because you're not serving us anymore. Their only concern yeah. was like, can I stay? Yeah, please don't fire me. There was a there were a lot of those kind of conversations. Like, can we come with you, please? Um, I had more of those conversations than you know any questioning of me. I didn't have anybody ask me like, I don't know if this is a good fit anymore. Or do you think this is still a good fit? That wasn't a concern. 
Um, and I will also say it was early enough that it wasn't a huge group of people that I was telling that to, and it wasn't a right. huge issue, right? It was just more me. And I didn't make a big deal of it because I didn't think it impeded my ability to serve my existing clients. I mostly was just saying, all right, from a marketing standpoint, I'm going to start talking more about this it, these issues now. I'm going to start talking more about how to pay yourself as a business owner and how you should hire your staff and how you can set up a retirement plan as an entrepreneur, right? All of those issues that they have. And I don't think that it was really that alarming to people. Uh, and if it was, I didn't hear about it. So I think it wasn't that big of a deal. So what comes next in this process of trying to grow and and get going like you had the foreign service webinars or or in-person um seminars you did the virtual financial conference got got some activity from that but was time intensive enough you didn't necessarily want to do it again as more clients were starting to come you you mentioned starting to leverage yourself on other people's podcasts so i guess i'm wondering like was was that what came next and and how did that work yeah so that was in tandem i would say What I was starting to see was that I really enjoyed speaking to other people about financial advice and what this business is and how it can look and the problems that I see with it. And I wanted to find a way to get the word out to my ideal client about this being an available option to them because I think they they really genuinely, in general, don't understand that it is available to them to hire a financial advisor at their age, at their asset level, what have you, even if they have a decent amount of income. So I just made the decision to say, all right, I'm going to look for these folks where they are and try and reach out just like I did with that virtual event to see if they're willing to have me on the podcast. And that was really exciting for them and for me. And I had such a great reception to that. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation now on the internets, the interwebs about how, you know, people of color are breaking the paradigms around money that we as a community have. And we're looking for people who can help us achieve that end. And so, so many of those hosts were like, I would absolutely love to have someone with qualifications, not someone who's, Mm. you know, an influencer who doesn't necessarily have the technical expertise to talk to us about how to come up with a sound financial strategy for ourselves and our families to build wealth and to change our family's financial trajectory. So talk to us more about this. What like what podcasts at the end do you find? Like just how do you find how, how do you find your people? Like how did you find the prospects you're trying to reach and the podcasts that they listen to? So I think the benefit of being an entrepreneur at the outset and you know not having much to lose is that you're hungry and you're willing to talk to anybody. And so that was my attitude. I wanted to find people that were not direct competitors to me that we're probably talking to people who are my ideal clients already and probably didn't have a financial advisor or a financial or investment professional on their podcast before. So, you know, I would take to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and just look for, you know, podcasts that talked about cultural issues for Latinas, podcasts that talked about business and, you know, maybe starting a side hustle, podcasts that talked to women and not, you know, LGBTQ members, community members 
who wanted to, you know, talk about general cultural issues. I was just looking for podcasts that did not have financial professionals on there already, but talked about issues and economic empowerment and economic justice and, you know, shifting cultural paradigms, but needed somebody like me to talk about money because money is such a huge part of doing all of that work. So as you're talking about this, you're kind of framing it as ultimately you want to find people who like who are speaking to your target client. So I guess who's how is your target client defined at this point? Are we in the uh, just entrepreneur in general? Are we uh, have we modified it further? Like where does it stand? Yeah. So at this point, I was seeing that I was having the most success and the doing the best work for entrepreneurs and people that had equity compensation. That was the majority of the new clients that I had that I was the most excited about. And so I decided I'm going to double down on those two groups in terms of you know, marketing and prospecting and attracting new clients. So we started out focusing foreign service, um, and then we were doing the broader virtual conference. Like, at what point did you find out that you were like that you were doing your best work with entrepreneurs and people with equity comp? Like, where yeah. where did those people come from that you got some that you could work with, and then yeah. say, "Gee, I want to do more of these." Like. I feel like sometimes there's a chicken egg thing of like, well, you know, give me give me a hundred clients with a hundred different types, and I'll tell you which ones I like working with. But mm-hmm. that starts with give me a hundred clients that I don't totally, have. Totally, <laughs> totally, that's a great question. So some of them came from that virtual conference. Okay. Others came from the podcast appearances. And some also came from referrals. So it wasn't a very clear cut initial source. It wasn't like I had one CPA that was referring all of these ideal clients to me. It was they were coming from various sources, but... I was finding because you were just getting yourself out all over the place of like I'm a financial advisor and I do this stuff. Yes, there's some target markets, but also just am advisor will work for money. Totally. And I will (laughs) say that, you know, I I am in a place and I am fortunate to be at an intersection of identities and demographics to whereas I'm the minority, which, you know, you don't usually say that that's a benefit, but it is a benefit when someone starts making half a million dollars a year and says, I could use some financial advice, but I want to work with somebody that understands me and is not going to judge me and is going to take me seriously. And that person, I would like that person to look like me. And so it's kind of hard to find that. So, so, you know. so, so being a visible advisor of color for a subset of consumers who are, you know, people of color uh, looking for an advisor or wanting to work with an advisor of color, that that you know that that in and of itself starts to become a way that you are showing up in a differentiated way in the marketplace because they're if you're a person of color looking for an advisor of color, you're just not going to have a lot of choices or like the advisors of color are going to get noticed very quickly. And you were, you were out there in that group. Absolutely. And I will also add to that sort of subset that a lot of these clients, they are very well aware of the options that they have in terms of, you know, advisors that work at insurance companies or 
are commission-based, but they also know that that's not as comprehensive and holistic as what they want and what they need. And so they're very, you know, laser focused on not only finding someone that meets all of that aforementioned criteria that you meant, you, you just stated, but also that someone who is going to work with them in a way that does not have conflicts of interest. I think there's a great amount of distrust of our business as a whole. And so, you know, client, my target clients are looking for a group that understands them and also knows what they're talking about and also is not just going to try and sell them a bunch of stuff as they perceive it. So I, I, I've got to ask, you know, just one of the questions I know comes up a lot in the discussion, the advisor community around, you know, particularly, I, I guess, people of color, but I, I might even just say minorities more broadly that often seek out advisors from a similar background and that there's a a broader common the advisor community of, hey, if financial planning is about learning about clients' hopes, dreams, goals, and wishes, and then providing whatever they need, like shouldn't shouldn't that person of color be able to be served by any advisor that will do a comprehensive financial planning data gathering process to understand yeah. their hopes, dreams, goals, and wishes and and then recommend appropriately? Like help us understand just what is it that you find that distinguishes the work you're able to do with the clients that you were seeking out that was so drawing them to you and feeling like they weren't getting it from the rest of the advisor community? That is a million dollar question, Michael. And I will say it really comes down to something that I failed to mention earlier when I was talking about my experience in work. So much of what I wanted from my potential clients was for them to take me seriously and not immediately discount me as someone who didn't know what they were talking about. And I think that sense of safety and that sense of familiarity and understanding and having that understanding without having to explain yourself is so crucial. You know, it's one thing to serve a client with empathy, which I think so many good advisors do. And they, you know, have that process that you mentioned. They have the credentials, they have the knowledge and the skill set. And so they can certainly serve anybody. But it's a whole nother thing when we're talking about money, which is so emotionally fraught for people and can feel like if we're not mastering it, we are missing a key life skill and we're going to be judged for that. I think for communities of color, that portion can feel really overwhelming. And they can oftentimes feel like, I can find this advisor, but is he going to judge me because I'm sending a thousand bucks a month to my parents? Is he going to judge me because mm. I am not really understanding why he's talking to me about PE ratios when he's talking to me about my portfolio. I'm not understanding why he's talking about volatility in the portfolio and the market. If I don't necessarily have that comfort, and this this goes down to you know any marginalized group, but even just something so basic as working with women, a lot of advisors talk to their clients in a way that is not accessible, and it is not relatable, and it is not a welcoming, safe, comfortable environment for them. And so when you think about systematically marginalized groups, that's just another level and layer of discomfort and not feeling safe in that environment. And so I think the reality is, yes two potential clients and have them be served by two potential advisors, one who has a similar economic, social, racial, you know, what have you, sexual orientation to that person, and one served by someone of the exact opposite. However, what I find is that there is a level of depth to the relationship, comfort to the relationship, and understanding that is 
just built in from the outset of the relationship when you share some of those identifiers with them. And I think the real truth is, is that as advisors, we have to create that emotional connection, that emotional safety in order to have that real long-term change with our clients. Because if they don't feel comfortable with us, and they don't feel safe with us to ask the questions or to tell us about that bad habit they have or to tell us about the the real deep fears they have about their finances, then we're not able to do our best work. We can create plans, but they're not going to stick because those clients didn't tell us about you know their 3 a.m. Amazon shopping habit or whatever it is. We tend to get people who have had some money challenges or made some poor decisions in the past because that's part of what makes you want to seek out an expert. But that means uh, you know, we, we disproportionately talk to people who have a heightened sense of fear about being judged for their prior money decisions or actions. And when you mix uh, you know, cultural differences on top of that, it just gets exponentially more amplified. Totally. And I will also say that, you know, when you're looking at a group of people that typically have a lot more economic insecurity or money trauma or, um, you know, poor experience with money in their upbringing or in their early adulthood, that's just compounded. And so there's a lot of emotions that are wrapped up there and fear of judgment and not just fear of judgment. You know, this is a, a whole nother subset, but as minorities, we are typically taught that we are representatives of our group, whatever subgroup that is that we belong to. And so when we are faced with someone from the majority we feel like we have to be on our best behavior. And that's a paradigm that I I know that my generation is really working towards not continuing, but it's, it's so ingrained in the culture that like, don't let the older white gentleman see you not being a hundred percent better than everybody else. Um, if, if, and there's a, there's because, a sense of insecurity. Because you're carrying the weight of every, yeah. everyone else who appears like you that you now quote unquote represent. Totally. In so, this environment. Totally. So I'm the only, you know, m- mid thirties Latina he's ever come across. And so I, it, he's going to extrapolate from our interactions or my money mistakes or my money hangups that all Latinas do these kind of things and he's going to judge us. And so I think there's so much of that that's wrapped up in the dynamics that puts a mm. wall between the potential client and the advisor. And so because of these layers, a subset of, I guess, people of color, entrepreneurs and executives of color who came across your work saw you as an advisor that seems to share some of these backgrounds and challenges, which makes you feel like a more familiar and more safe advisor to work with. And so thus kind of this additional layer of your framing around starting to work with first-generation Americans who have shared some of these challenges where you can relate with them and create more of a safe space for them. Absolutely. That's it. And it's served me really well. I think the other thing that I have really focused on in my marketing and in, I think has contributed so much to my firm growth has been speaking to people in a way that conveys, I know what I'm talking about without talking down to them and without 
speaking in jargon. It's it's something that's really important to me because I also feel if you cannot avoid speaking in jargon, then you probably don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and so I like to break things down as relatable and as understandable and make myself as approachable and accessible as possible in doing so, so that people feel like it's normal for me to have these questions or these struggles, or not everybody knows this, or I can actually understand what this person is talking about. So if she digs into my finances and makes recommendations for me, I will actually be able to take action on that because she has explained things to me in a way that I understand and I can implement without it completely going over my head. So help us understand how the growth f- flows next. Like I'm, I'm sort of seeing these pieces converge together. So mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're getting some clients there coming to you from a wide range of means. Some are podcast appearances, the financial conference, some personal referrals. You're starting to get these overlaps of entrepreneurs and people with equity compensation and getting particular connections to entrepreneurs and people with equity compensation who are people of color or first generation Americans. And so this target market begins to get clearer and tighter for you. And it just becomes, okay, if I'm zeroing in more on these groups, then where do I go to find podcasts that speak to these groups in particular? That's it. It's just a snowball effect. Since I started Data Dream, I've been featured on 72 different media outlets or podcasts or you know interviews. And that's not a small amount. <laughs> no. That's not a small amount in three years' time, uh, less than three years' time at this point. And so I would say, you know, I really was just extending my tentacles as far as I could and getting that word out and trying to make sure that my voice was very clear and authentic so that when people came yeah. to me, they could get a really clear sense of whether they liked me and my approach or not. And so that's led to me feeling really satisfied with the client base I've built built up and really fortunate that I get to work with such cool, amazing people. I am fascinated though the, by just how this flowed at a high level that you know you as we sourced at the beginning, like but you weren't just trying to put your voice out there into the world and you know and build a list or an email list or a blog following or podcast following off of that. Although I know you were you were doing some of that in parallel. You're your strategy for this was finding other podcasts and outlets that just already existed and had audience and just showing up as yourself with your voice there. And I guess ultimately letting people find you, but being clear enough about what you do that you get in front of enough people, a few of them are going to raise their hand at pretty much any opportunity. Yeah. The name of the game was Leverage, right? So as I mentioned, I started Mm -hmm. this with a couple thousand dollars from my personal savings and I didn't have... I knew I didn't want to go back where I was, so I knew I had to make this work. And so I was going to find whatever way I could to make the most use of my time and be really intentional with my time and think about what is going to be the most bang for my buck. Not to say I've always landed a home run with every instance of you know effort I put out, but... I certainly have found a way to speak to people that have pretty large audiences and gotten to work with so many of my ideal clients as a result of that. And so what is the what does the structure look like today? I mean, if we were again gonna gonna describe the firm as it is today, like who do you serve and what do you charge? What does that look like now? So I really have three business models um, as it stands. So I've kept the ongoing client relationships as it stands. I have 32 of those. 
Um, those are your traditional retainer clients. I do do some AUM now, um, mostly from client demand of you've given me a strategy and I really don't want to place these trades myself. Can you do it for me? (laughs) And so they twisted my arm and I got there. Um, I also do some short-term engagements, which can look differently based on the type of client, but I do two. One is sort of your month long that I started with that we had talked about before. It's about a month. We have two different meetings, do the full financial plan, uh, and then they have me for you know email, phone support, follow-up questions after. The last, which has been the newest edition, but kind of the funnest, has been doing a one-day planning session with folks. And I've found that works really well with people who are really organized already or don't have the most complex situation. And we can really dig in deep on their finances in a day and just get it done, which can be really emotionally satisfying for everybody involved. And like just literally like, hey, we're going to do financial planning for the day. Like you're going to you're going to start with me at nine o'clock in the morning by five in the afternoon. You're like, your plan's going to be done. Your stuff's going to be done. Yeah. Like we're just going to go implement it on the spot. I mean, like are yeah. you doing all of it real time? Yeah. So what what it usually looks like is, you know, they'll sign a client agreement. We have a bunch of onboarding questionnaires that they do that I've created myself. They will link their accounts in Right Capital, which is the software that I use. Probably two days before, I will review everything, make sure that the basic inputs are put into the software and so that, you know, or statements that information is put into the software. So I have a really clear picture on what their finances are. And then we'll send them a schedule and say, all right, we're going to meet for 75 to 90 minutes at the outset of our time together. I'm going to run off and do my thing for a couple of hours. And then we're going to come back together at the end of that time and meet for another 75 to 90 minutes. And within two days of that, you will get your final report, any follow-up deliverables, and you have 30 days to ask whatever questions you want after that, but that's our time together. Interesting. So so it's not necessarily like, not that I really quite thought it was going to be this way, but it's not like eight hour, an eight-hour meeting no. oh my God. for the full day, like we're just going to grind on all this stuff till we get it done. No. It's, it's a planning session, and then I guess you're going off to do some analysis and write capital, and then you come back and, and give them some recommendations on the spot that they can then walk away with and implement. Exactly. And we do sometimes do things together, like change their 401k allocation real time while we're there, Um, you know, set up a 529 account for their kids while we're there. We will do some of that together. uh, But for the most part, they are doing that on their own. I'm really just coming to them with the strategy. So typically, I don't spend more than three hours of that day with them. I typically block off and I don't, you know, as as I'm sure you can imagine, I have no other meetings or anything else going on that day. Right, right, right. But I typically block off about six hours and say, this is my time to meet with them, do my thing. And then Afterwards, probably the next morning, once I'm rested, I will, you know, update their executive financial summary that I sent to them, give them access to right capital, do all of the follow-up, maybe run some insurance quotes or those kind of things for them, and then follow that up with them. And what do you charge for for this? So it depends on complexity. Uh, it ranges from fifteen hundred to thirty five hundred for the day, uh, depending on what the folks have going on. Okay. Um, I don't offer this for everyone. I have gotten really good at gauging people's personality mm-hmm. and 
what what's going to work and what's not going to work. I know the people that I would hand this to and they'd never execute on anything of it, which, you know, if they're not an ongoing client, I don't really know that, but I hate for my work to be for naught. So, um, you know, I offer it to a particular subset of people that really, I think, are good at executing. They just need someone yeah. to tell them where they need to be running and which direction they need to go. Well, and from that perspective, like two, two $3,000 for just a super productive six-hour day, like a bad day no, by any measure. No. And it's really emotionally satisfying. I can't emphasize that enough to say, I mm. just revamped their finances top to bottom and gave them a really solid plan that they can follow. Uh, I'm very big on yeah. being actionable and having clear cut steps for clients. So I don't do, you know, sort of the 100 page write capital report and hand that to them and say, all right, you know, here are some things you should think about and go from there, right? I create like a 10 page summary for them. Um, I started with Carl Richards sort of one page financial plan statement of financial purpose and I've expanded it to about nine or 10 pages, but really actionable high level. Here's what you told me you want. Here's the issue. Here are my recommendations. And here are the four things based on my recommendations that you need to do. And I give that to them and it's so clear cut that I also don't, they don't usually have many questions after because it's very clear, like, all right, I need to set up a monthly transfer to my brokerage account of $3,000 and they just know what they need to be doing. So I'm fascinated by that. I, so wait, so then what does the retainer business look like? Because if this is a, if this is like a up to $3,500 one day engagement, I'm assuming we're not still $3,000 a year on the retainer end. No, no. Um, I have three tiers really for clients. One is, you know, if they are sort of W-2 employees, which I don't have many clients coming to me with that. Then the next is if they have equity comp, and then the highest is if they are entrepreneurs. And so that ranges from 6000 all the way to 12000 depending on the complexity and what's happening with their financial situation. Per, per year, 6K, per year. 6K mm-hmm. to 12K per year, so $500,000 a month. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So, so now that you're like three years into this ramp up. I mean, can I ask, like, what is what is revenue grown to as you're as you're coming up on three year anniversary? Yeah. So my first full year, I earned about forty two thousand. I think just forty two, maybe fifty thousand, something like that. Now that's, that's like netted from the business. Like that's gross. Oh, that's revenue. gross. Oh, okay. <laughs> I paid myself like twelve dollars that year. <laughs> Yeah, twelve dollars, like- but a little bit more than that. Um, and then gross this year, gross this year should be four hundred thousand. Oh, so and that's a combination of on ongoing retainer clients, mm-hmm. the shorter term engagements, uh, you know, one day planning sessions that add up. Exactly. So you know, last year, and it's it's really a snowball, as I know you know the the growth yeah. curve is exponential. And it really hits you when you sit back and look at the numbers. So, you know, as I was preparing for this, I looked at how many of those one day or short term engagements I did last year versus this year. And so last year I did 12 one time planning sessions. So that was one a month, just about. And this year I've already done 10 with another several that are locked in for the rest of the year. Okay. And out of curiosity, like because your retainer model has moved so much, right? Just you went from three k a year to to six to twelve. I mean, you 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 know you two x to four x the fee, mm-hmm. uh, in part because you're working with slightly different folks that have more complexity. But yeah. I just it's moved a lot. Like, did you go back and? 
change old clients as you've moved the the fee structure or is it just as new people come in you've adjusted your your pricing accordingly it's definitely been both it's been okay. a converse a lot of conversations with my early adopter clients to say hey you know we are doing all of these different things and our business model has changed and so, you know, we need to increase the fees to bring it more on par. I wouldn't say that I've done a 3x increase on anybody. That would be that okay. would be a lot. But we have certainly done an increase. And it's been, a you know, a, an open conversation of we'll take, maybe we'll take a little bit of time. We'll do an incremental increase this year. And then next year, we'll do another incremental increase to get you on par with, you know, where new folks are coming in at that have a similar financial profile situation to you. And then, you know, I'm I'm bringing in new clients at that higher rate now. Okay. I mean, it's just uh, it's a phenomenal growth path to be you know go, going going as far as 400k of revenue in in three years out of the gate. And it, it sounds like just the driver to it was you know, sh- showing showing up with something interesting in a unique way, and then just going where the people were, which for you is a lot of fine podcasts with volume and be on them. Totally. And I would say if if there's any lesson to be had from my example, it's really that we as advisors have to be much more comfortable in not blending into the sea of sameness that so much of the advisory business has been mm-hmm. for so long. And if you're willing to be a tall poppy, <laughs> as the, the Aussies say, you won't get cut down, but people will notice you. And so I think you have to be willing to speak up boldly and clearly on who you are, what you do, have a point of view, have an opinion, and then market yourself in a non-traditional way. And not to say that, you know, I'm not providing like traditional financial advice because I very much so am, but I am speaking to people in a way that a lot of advisors don't, and that will get you noticed very quickly. So what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? Oh, I think the continuous doubt was the most surprising. I thought at some point I would be really rock solid and certain of every decision I made, but that has not been the case. I think you can operate on your intuition and operate on a proven track record, but you're never going to feel 100% stable. And, you know, culturally and based on my upbringing, that was what was prized to me. Both my parents worked at the same employer for like 40 some odd years and until they retired. That's just their wow. path. They are steady as can be. My dad is the steadiest person you'd ever meet. I can tell you, name a day of the week and a time, and I know what he's doing because he's been doing it for for 40 years. Saturday at 10 a.m., dad's eating peanuts and watching cowboy movies. Like, that's what he's watching. But I, I had to learn to be comfortable with doubt and uncertainty and not fleeing to stability. And that was a learning curve. And I thought I would get over it, but I really haven't. And it's been a continual commitment to being comfortable with doing things a little bit different, with things looking different than what I thought they were going to look like, and adjusting and rising to those occasions and being adaptable and resilient that has stretched me mentally and emotionally in a way that I wasn't prepared for. So what was the low point for you on this journey? So the low point really, Michael, was when I was getting a lot of clients, but I wasn't charging enough and I hadn't hired an assistant yet. And so 
I was working all the time and I felt really stretched thin and I felt like I was not seeing the output for what I wanted to be doing uh, or, or what I was doing. And it felt really thankless and stressful. And so I had to have a lot of conversations with myself and do some reflection on, you know, I can't for the longevity of my business and my career, I can't continue to undercharge because it's not serving me and my clients. I also can't try and be a one woman band just to save money because it's not serving me energetically. And, you know, we've talked about how I have three kids and I like yeah. to sleep and I like to exercise and do other things besides sit in front of my computer. And so it's really important to me that I manage my energy and my time. And I'm really laser focused on that. And having help is a huge portion of that. And I don't think that it's any, um, it's not a coincidence that my business has grown exponentially every time I've made some additional hires or brought on some additional support. So anything else that like, you know, now that you wish you could go tell you kind of like five to seven years ago when you're still in, in the middle of the old job and trying to figure out, is this my path? Yeah, I would just tell myself that there's so much more opportunity and possibility than you know, and you're capable of so much more than you know. And the only way to find out what those two are, are to take the risk and to take the bet. And once again, not to cling to certainty and predictability. Mm. I think, you know, that's a generational thing as well. But for me, that was really soul sucking. And it took so much joy out of what I do in trying to just follow this proven path. There's so much excitement in forging your own path and finding your own way. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors of color thinking about coming into the industry? So I talk to a lot of young advisors or people that are interested in making a career switch. I hold a monthly future financial advice office hours, and I will totally share that link if if there's anybody that wants to join. Yeah, that would be great. So this is... um episode 293. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 293, we'll have a, a link out to Anna's office hours. Yeah. So so I host those once a month. And what I find a lot is that folks feel as though there's not a path for them outside of the wirehouse and they can't make a living outside of that. And I always tell people, I am a, I am a living, breathing example that that is not the case. And in fact, you can build a really exciting, great business serving the people that you want to serve. And you can feel really satisfied satisfied and excited about working every day and coming to work every day and doing the work that you do. And it's not a either or uh, decision. It's an and decision. The other thing I would say is not to be afraid to be yourself. Once again, I'm a living example of I am very vocal and I speak in a way that's authentic to me and I speak my mind and that does not put off my clients. If it did, you know, I wouldn't be where I am right now. They're totally fine with me, you know, being how I am and being authentic. And so, you know, we have a tendency as a group to really make ourselves small. And I want to invite folks to not do that. I think there's a powerful point in, in how you frame that. Like, it doesn't put off my clients. Yeah. Never mind, like, probably someone else who doesn't like it, you know, human beings are getting human. We can all find some, some reason we don't like someone else. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the, the only, the only people that matter in that equation are, are your clients. And if your clients like how you show up authentically, like doesn't really matter what the rest of the industry people think. 
it really does not. And I will tell you that there have been a lot of moments where I've said to myself, I can't believe that I get to be a financial advisor and, you know, talk to people about that I love Bad Bunny and talk to people about, you know, my, that I like to do kickboxing or I like to dance or, you know, I have very strong feelings about lots of things. (laughs) I get to talk to folks about all of that and really be a whole person. And that's an attractive feature to my clients. Not only does it not put put them off, but it's brought really great people into my life that I'm able to help achieve their goals. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that always comes up is just the word success means very different things to different people. And so you're on this incredible path to success and $400,000 of revenue three years in by finding who you want to serve. So like the business is going so well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? So for me, I think it's feeling joy and excitement every day and also being able to have agency and make my own choices in a way that feels like it's an alignment. I never want to feel like I'm trapped or like I'm locked in a box and locked Mm -hmm. in in a path because of my past decisions. And the fact that I get to be creative and speak in a way that's authentic and live authentically and balance my career passions, which makes up so much of who I am as a person with my personal aspirations and the things that I love personally, being able to do that is what success looks like for me. Um, You know, beyond that, I think modeling that for my daughters is just such a gift. And if I, if I leave no other legacy, I want them to know that they can do their work that they were born to do in the world and they can still be themselves while doing that and, you know, prioritize what matters to them. And that, that's what my legacy hopefully will be for those little ones. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Anna, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. This is such a pleasure. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.